The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in All right, uh, we're trying something different here. I don't know uh, whether you guys can hear us better now. Please write in. Traven did something. I saw something on the screen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> write in and tell us if you can hear better now. But we're talking about school refusal right now and how uh, a lot of people are going back in the classroom and they're going back in different ways. Here in Los Angeles yesterday, they said we're going back to school in the fall, but it's masks on. And a lot of people are having many meltdowns about that, although they gave an asterisk in saying that they'll you know, consider special considerations. Uh, Okay, so Dr. Grampuche, talk to us about school refusal while we work on the sound. Yeah, and Shannon, I just, I missed the first part of this. Are, are we talking about refusal due to COVID issues? Is that what we're talking about? Well, I think we're talking about when kids refuse for various and sundry reasons, um, that they don't want to go to school. Now, some of that, I think, is going to be, we're going to see much more of it because they're used to being home from COVID and they don't want to be in a mask. But I think in general, um, what do we do when our kiddo or our teen does not want to go to school? Yeah, that's that's a lot easier to answer <laughs> than if the refusal was on the school side. Yeah. So, um, of course, you know, we've talked about this a few times before. Uh, you, it's, it always, it's just simple to look at everything that you want to change in terms of just behavior. And if you want to increase a behavior or decrease a behavior. And here, of course, the goal is to increase a behavior. Oh, good. I can see that Charles wrote in that the volume has been fixed. Thank Yay! you, Charles. Appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and I saw also Charles's other texts uh, coming on there. And Charles, please get in touch with Shannon. And that's why Shannon gave you the email, her I'm email. Put back in too. And then uh, we can connect that way. We'd love to talk to you. Um, so uh, in terms of kids who don't want to go to school, and by the way, you're right, it will be much more common now because kids are now used to uh, staying at home, right? And it's a whole different world of starting to get on a schedule again and uh, getting ready in the morning, getting there on time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's hard. Um, and like anything else, when you want to increase the behavior, a lot of the folks on the call know um, all you have to do is increase reinforcers, right? So you need we need to do this in a way where the experience of going to school becomes a pleasant one. Um, now that's, <clears throat> it sounds a little bit harder than it is because not any, any given child is not going to necessarily find school to be a pleasant experience right off the bat. Right. But you can make some changes that'll help that happen. And one of the things you could do is we're going to shape this behavior, right? So we're going to start out with, we're only going to school for one hour. And if you go to school for one hour, and maybe one hour is even too much in the beginning, we want to do, we want to start kind of where uh, the, the child is comfortable. So you can also go with, let's say, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is. If it's even, in some cases, I've had children where it, like something traumatic has happened in school, 
and honestly they can't even get out of the car so we just go we start with a baseline we call it baseline which is the level at which the child is okay and the baseline is sometimes just driving to the parking lot and that's where we have to start but wherever the child's baseline is let's say it's an it's driving to the parking lot or it's being there for an hour the idea is that you list kind of a, a series of progressions. So, you know, driving to the parking lot, then driving to the parking lot and getting out of the car, uh, you know, driving to the parking lot, getting out of the car and going and saying hi to the teacher, um, you know, going saying hi to the teacher and then spending five minutes there, whatever it is, you just write this progression and you basically do it every day and you make sure that the child receives a massive reward for completing the progression. So uh, let's say we're up to an hour at school. First of all, you wanna make sure that when they're in school, they're having a good time, they're okay, and you wanna to talk to the teacher about this. Um, and then when they're done with it and you pick them up, they get something very special that they wouldn't normally get. And that's important because reinforcers are only valid if you uh, don't overuse them, right? So. They will only be effective if it's an unusual thing. If we went to Disneyland every single day, there'd be nothing special about it anymore. So, and it could be small things like ice cream or whatever your child is allowed to have that's a treat that they can't usually have. And so by doing this, what you're doing is you're shaping the child's behavior and you're reinforcing uh, the goal, which is spending, let's say, three hours or five hours or six hours, whatever it is, in school, and you're gradually doing this. Now, remember, a lot of these things that you change behaviorally do not happen overnight. So this is going to take some time, maybe a month, maybe two months, because you don't want to jump from five minutes in school to three hours in school. Don't think that because the child has had a success at the first hour, they're gonna be fine with six hours right off the bat. You have to make sure that there's progressive reinforcement. And by the way, when you hit to like five hours or six hours, make sure the teacher is working with you and taking care of the child and rewarding them perhaps on the hour. And so the concept is always, whenever you wanna change your behavior, you break the behavior down, you make small demands with a lot of reinforcers. And then over time, as the demands become kind of bigger, you can also start to reduce your reinforcers once the child is comfortable. And the reason you do this is because in real life, you're not gonna, the child is not gonna get a reward for every hour of being in school or every five minutes. That's just not real life. It's kind of a, we've set that up to teach the child, but you always wanna end with something that is like real life because you want the behavior to maintain. You don't want the behavior to disappear as soon as you stop giving rewards, right? So you have to, at the end of this, you have to reduce the reinforcers so that they're like real life. How do you do that? Well, most of our kids, I find, Shanna, I think the biggest reinforcer for a lot of kids when they go to school is other kids, right? A lot of our kids go there because they want to see their friends. Now, with our children, children on the spectrum, they might not have friends. They might feel, they might be bullied. <clears throat> they might feel left out. They might feel like a little bit lost. They can't keep up with what's going on. 
So that means that to begin with, the school environment is not a positive environment for them to begin with. So a lot of the work that we do in ABA is in behavior analysis is we're trying to teach the child skills at home, kind of like tutoring, um, so that when they go to school, they have a more positive experience. So if you think of, the, let's say, the child who is bad at math and dreads math uh, class, right? But you, they get tutoring at home and then they become like the best math student and now no long, they're no longer afraid of going to math class, right? It's the same concept here. So with our children, you wanna make sure they have some skills that are gonna help them get through the school day. Um, that you, so you need to support them academically at home. You need to maybe invite friends over to the house so that they can have someone that they're familiar with when they go to school. Um, you want to make sure the teacher keeps an eye on them. You want to get the teacher maybe or, or an aide or someone to write a journal so you know what's going on with the child, uh, what part of the day they're having a hard time. Um, you might even want to like have, uh, you know, make your child the cool child by giving them like really cool snacks that they can share with other kids or uh, events that like parties where you invite everyone to the house. There's a lot of stuff you can do to make your child kind of feel more comfortable at school. And let me tell you, it is super, super important to do these things because when a child doesn't want to go to school and we are forcing the child to go to school, it's most of the, their life is spent in an environment that they're unhappy. And so that's really important. I love everything that you said. And it was like taking a tour of going back in time. And because uh, you guys told me to do all these things for my son. And it, it's like a full-time job. Let me just say that. It's exhausting. It's a full-time job of keeping up on, as you said, making sure that there's some sort of treat for having gone to school, even if it's for part of the day working on stuff at home to give them the skills, making your house the cool, fun place to be. But it's a really good full-time job. And it's a full-time job that pays a lot and, and especially in benefits for you and for your kiddo. Because the first time that you see your kiddo being excited to go to school and being excited to have a friend and getting in your car when you pick them up from school and they're excited to go do the thing that's the treat that they get because they had a good day at school. Let me tell you, it's the best parenting moment you can have. So um, I would watch this video back eight, eight or nine times uh, so that you can make sure that you get all, because Dr. Grampier gave you the total 411 on that. But I, I agree with her. It's 100%. We, as a former teacher, we can't have kids not liking school work with your school work with your aba professionals uh and work with your kiddo to make it more fun hey sadie wants to know how can i stop mouthing for a three-year-old who knows not to mouth but sneaks mouthing when you're not looking mm -hmm. uh they mouth squishy toys and hard plastic objects the bcba recommended jewelry that's the jewelry that is safe to chew on allowing the child to bite and then fading it but it but advised it could take a long time to fade she goes on to say that they said that there is no other sensory outlet for mouthing than providing a chew toy crunchy foods or toothbrush 
she has been blocking the behavior with a verbal and and using a verbal no. So any other, we've got a lot of questions. So many people watching from all around the world. Uh, we're so excited to have, I know we've got India and Ireland in the house, right in where you guys are at. But for mouthing, three-year-old, yeah. I mean, that's pretty young. Um, yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so mouthing is an exploratory type of uh, activity. So as you know, a lot of babies mouth things. It's because they're trying to figure out what it is. Um, and with our kids, they just don't age out of it. And also, sometimes our children are, uh, they, they mouth because of the sensory aspect of things. And a lot of our kids who have apraxia, like low muscle tone in the tongue, uh, try to put chew things and they put things in their mouth and chew it, which is not necessarily bad. What I would do is, uh, I guess two things. I would try to get control of the mouthing and chewing, assuming it's kind of one behavior, um, in, in a way that I would limit it to certain objects like the jewelry um, and but and also certain times of the day and I'm going to tell you kind of how to do that so what I would do is I would definitely have the jewelry and perhaps a couple of other chewable items that are okay for the child to chew right um, I would also definitely get a vibrating uh, there these are specific they're not just like the normal vibrating toothbrushes electric toothbrushes that will work too by the way uh, but there's also vibrating uh, various things that are used by speech therapists, and you can order these online um, that are good for activating kind of inside the mouth. And a lot of our chewers uh, really enjoy those items. Bottom line, the, the goal is to have like, let's say five items that are A, allowed to be chewed and B, actually good for uh, activating, you know, uh, muscles in the mouth, like the, the, the vibrating toothbrush, for instance, and uh, make sure those items are there. And every time your child wants to, starts to chew something or mouth something, block that, but give them one of those items. So in other words, teach the child, it's not okay to chew this, it is okay to chew this, okay? So you're going to now narrow it to those specific things. The other things that your child choose, I would get um, no bite from your regular, your local um, drugstore, uh, pharmacy or drugstore. No bite is this kind of bitter thing that's used for children who bite their nails and it's <clears throat> completely harmless, but you can basically put it on the other items that your child has a tendency to bite so that, or chew. So that that is not a pleasant experience. Chewing the things that you allow them is totally fine. Okay. Now you have a you differentiated between these things are not okay. These things are fine, and the child will very quickly get that because taste aversion is something that are, that human beings react to very quickly. So he's the child is going to be very fine with just going with those five objects. You want to make sure that when they need to chew, they'll go someplace and get it right? And they can chew it there. Now, uh, the other thing is you want to kind of start to, once you've done that, you want to start to limit to a certain time of day. Probably the time of day that you want to do, or times in the day, 
would be when you are there to kind of supervise or see you or an adult are there to be able to actually oversee this process because you don't want the child just going around putting objects we don't know because some of these items even the jewelry um can c come into pieces and it could be you just want to make sure there's an adult there to oversee this so basically let's say you select um, you know, a five minute time frame every hour of the child when they're awake. And that is the five minute period where the child is allowed to chew without any interference. And what you do is you block the rest of the time, but during that five minute period or 10 minute period, whatever is required, um, you the child's totally fine. You're sitting there, you're allowing kind of like I don't know, as if, uh, you know, uh, you're watching TV together or it's an activity that you are going to allow the child to do while you are there or an adult is there. The ultimate goal here will be that your child will learn if you do this procedure that I can, chew, I can get my chewing needs accomplished as long as there's someone with me and it's like a certain time and it's these particular objects and then you kind of have it under control for a little bit now as the child gets older what we've done in the past is we've taught children how to replace their need for chewing by chewing gum right which is a totally normal way to to chew and uh so once the child is a little bit older you go into this protocol of trying to teach the child to actually move from those objects to gum which is completely fine as long as they know how to spit it out when they're done with it. And so that's kind of another step, but that uh, is a little bit older child. Okay, great advice. Paula, Paula wants to know, what's the best way to deal with aggression in a teenager? My yeah. son's automatic reaction is to hit out when things don't go his way. He instantly regrets it. It's just an automatic response to anything that he feels is unfair consequences escalate his, escalate his behavior any advice would be appreciated thanks yeah and you know this is it's a little bit hard for me to uh, respond to this one because uh, every behavior has a function and it doesn't mean that so let's say the behavior here is aggression um, it's, we're not talking about the topography of the behaviors. We're not talking about just aggression as a whole. Aggression is, can have different functions at different times. So you might aggress if you're frustrated because, uh, it sounds like he's aggressing when he's frustrated, right? But the reason for it could be a multitude of things. So for instance, you could get frustrated and aggress if someone takes something away that you want right so that's one form another function could be you could aggress when you get so frustrated that you can't explain your what you want so you can't get access to something that you want and nobody understands you and therefore you aggress another thing could be hey you're in pain or you have a headache and nobody knows you don't know how to explain it so you could get aggressive there so aggression or any behavior can have a multitude of functions. And it's super important that you identify the function before, in order to figure out how to treat it. 
Because without knowing the actual function, you could be treating it completely wrong. So maybe you can write in a little bit and talk to us about uh, what happens when he aggresses, like what happens right before he aggresses. He, we know he's frustrated, but what is the frustration from? Is it because he can't communicate? If that's the case, we gotta teach him how to communicate better. Is it because uh, someone is asking him to do something and he doesn't wanna do it? Is it because he's someone's taking an object or an activity away? Um, write to us a little bit more and we'll tell you how to deal with them. Okay, and while she's doing that, Sarah's written in and said, hi, Dr. Doreen, I'm living in the U UAE and a mother of two-year-old identical twins. We first saw signs at 13 uh, months old. Given that we don't have any financial support through insurance, we did a lot of therapy ourselves and later hired a registered behavior technician. We're current, they're currently doing ABA, excuse me, oops, 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 I'm trying to hide that, uh, sorry. They're currently doing ABA five hours per week, each of them. Uh, she goes on to say, they've progressed really well. They can mand, tact, answer simple questions, really good with academics, numbers, alphabets, reading three-letter words. They are still behind in social and play skills. But she wants to know, is it possible? Uh, they're seeing great progress and their ability to learn so quickly. I sometimes wonder if they're just developmentally delayed or is this in fact autism? What is the possibility that they are just delayed? I mean, um, of course, there's a possibility that they are just developmentally or intellectually delayed for some reason. And, and um, you know, there's a difference. Uh, there are specific symptoms that need to be present in order for a child to be diagnosed with uh, autism. And uh, not, those are not the same symptoms as any kind of just general developmental delay or even intellectual delay. So uh, specific symptoms of autism uh, have, uh, there's a series of symptoms within the first category. There's two areas with autism. One is social communication and the second one is the presence of what we call repetitive, uh, stereotypical repetitive behaviors. Uh, so the first portion, the, the things that are kind of in that social communication area, um, are, sounds like your child has some of those things, your children. Um, and we're talking about delays in language, right? So the children can communicate the way they should at their age. Um, <clears throat> they don't have uh, uh, attachments to other children or to people the way that uh, they should. Uh, they don't have nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication is stuff like uh, looking at eye contact uh, or responding when they hear their name or uh, joint attention tasks like being able to look at you and then track your eye contact, those types of things. So those things are missing. Uh, and, you know, generally when you have a delay in language, it affects social skills. So there's a resulting delay in social behavior as a whole. So it's kind of like uh, the child is, is doesn't learn how to play appropriately with others, doesn't learn how to play appropriately with toys, just kind of starts to develop their own a little bit like isolated world. Um, on the other side, which, you know, by the way, both areas are required 
uh, for a diagnosis of autism. So in the area of kind of the <clears throat> stereotypical repetitive behaviors, we're looking at, uh, first of all, uh, possible sensory sensitivities, which is very important. So kids who are, uh, they are very sensitive to, let's say, sound or light, or they look at light in a certain way, or they play with sound, uh, or uh, very, like they're dysregulated with textures. So they're constantly touching things or playing with them and that sort of thing. Um, and or another area uh, could be just repetitive behaviors like uh, opening and closing the door, turning the lights on and off. Um, and then there's uh, stereotypical behaviors like lining up toys or objects in a kind of a fashion that doesn't make sense to anyone. Um, being very upset with transitions or changes in their environment. So both of these areas have to be present if you're looking for a diagnosis of autism. Um, and certainly, <clears throat> you know, doing ABA, which is what you're doing, and that's terrific, works with kids with autism, but it also works with kids with other developmental disabilities, for sure. Uh, it works with kids with, with chromosomal uh, issues like Down syndrome even. ABA is just a way to teach. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and often I tell people, especially in a country where you don't have health insurance coverage for autism, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. It really doesn't. Here, I always tell people in the U.S., the only reason you want to get a diagnosis is so you have coverage because the bottom line is we don't care about the diagnosis. What's important is to break down the behaviors and uh, you know, work on reducing behaviors that are not adaptive, that are challenging, like we were just talking about, like aggression, and increase skills that are deficient, right? So we want to make sure we're increasing those areas like you are um, in language and social and so on. But can we also acknowledge that because there are some kiddos that are showing um, signs of autism so young now, we've always talked about early intervention, Dr. Grampy-Shea, but there are some kids now that are getting diagnosed so early that I always think about the phrase that you used to say to parents about, you know, your child is behind and we're going to get him caught up and we're never going to let him fall behind again. Very famously quoted in Christina Adams' book, A Real Boy. And that's the kind of thing that gets parents so excited. We're going to get your child caught up and never let them fall behind. But you know, you and other people have now been able to take some of these kiddos when you catch them at such an early age and get them caught up to the point where, am I wrong in saying that some kiddos who were on a track where they would have been diagnosed with autism never actually get an autism yeah. diagnosis because you catch them up? That's very true. Um, and it all has to do with kind of the age of the child and the I guess the areas that we, the, the amount of work the child needs, right? So um, <clears throat> the younger the child, uh, the less uh, effect of autism and the more hours we have is kind of where, you know, we get the most success. I have had children where the parents, uh, you know, one of our dear friends, uh, Ilana is a good example of this, when a parent has a, another child with autism and they know the symptoms so well, they recognize the signs so well, 
uh, the parent will often uh, be able to see uh, some delays or issues arising when the child is like one, one, one and a half. Mm -hmm. And when they're that young and we can get in and work really intensively with the child very early on, sometimes the child doesn't even, you know, before the, the parent, before the child gets to be like four, uh, the child's diagnosis is gone because they never developed enough of those symptoms that are required for a diagnosis. So you're absolutely right, Shannon, it does happen. And even if there is a diagnosis, I mean, I just made a diagnosis on Monday with a child where, you know, I just want to get in there and get going as fast as possible with them because uh, the, the sooner you engage, the sooner you do intervention, um, the more you're teaching. It's just logic, right? I mean, it, any skill, the more time you spend on it, the more the child has a chance of getting better at it. Just Macy wrote in and said, I want to meet you and Dr. Doreen one day. Let's make it happen. I think as, as we get back out into the world, uh, we're, we're going to be more places where we can meet you. I, I, want to, I look forward to meeting you as well. Uh, uh, one of our dear viewers has written in and said that she's going to be having surgery in a couple of weeks and oh. that she's not going to be able, she's been the main caregiver for her kiddo. She's not going to be able to take care of him for two weeks and she wants some pointers about what she should be doing to prepare her husband and her family members to take good care of her kiddo during that period of time when she's recovering. And we wish you a speedy recovery. Yes, yes, I hope you do very well quickly. Yeah, so this is actually maybe a good thing uh, because, um, you know, a lot of times one parent becomes the primary caregiver and they learn everything and they take care of everything and they become so good at it that the other parent kind of... Um, takes the back seat a little bit and then sometimes the primary caregiver just gets exhausted right let's face it and they're just overwhelmed and now they need help and then the, the secondary caregiver is just not very good at it so that often causes a lot of strife right so this might be a good thing because this is a necessary time for you to really work with your husband and teach him the essentials of what needs to happen. Obviously, you're going to be in bed, perhaps resting and so on, but you can definitely give feedback. Uh, even if you're not at home, you could, they can certainly zoom in with you and you can give them guidance. But if you have time before the surgery, this is where you need to go through uh, here's the morning routine. This is how you prepare meals. This is what you need to do. Like he just should be uh, partnering with you, shadowing you uh, to do this. And, uh, you know, I'm sure lots of things go wrong. That's okay. Uh, you know, we all need to not be as perfectionist as we are and let things happen as they will. But, and everybody survives. But the good thing is that uh, you know, your husband will become more involved, first of all. Because a lot of times, Shannon, and I might, you know, you can talk about this much better than I can, but I feel like the dads want to help, or sometimes it's the moms. The other partner really wants to engage, but they don't because they feel like they're not as good as you are. 
they're not good enough. So it's kind of like, I don't want to screw this up and she's better at it. So I don't really, I don't think I should step in. Um, and this will be an opportunity for him to take charge and do it. And afterwards, believe me, there will also be a, a higher appreciation for what you do on a daily basis. I so agree. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, it's the stereotype, but I think it's the stereotype because it's true a lot of the time that the moms are the autism warriors, that they learn everything that they need to learn. They, you know, know how to pack that gluten-free, casein-free lunch. They know how to deal with every situation and the dads get cast in the role of I'm going to go to work and I'm going to make sure we have a roof over our heads. Now, sometimes it's the exact flip, but a lot of times I have a, uh, a friend in autism, uh, Moira Giamatteo, who calls it the project manager, that there's yeah. one person in the family that's the project that's manager in yeah. autism, and then a lot of times it's the mom. But, I, you know, I I agree with Dr. Grampy-Shea. I think that this is an ideal opportunity because it's like, mm, mom just can't step back in, and that you're going to come out of this stronger as a family and as a couple, and dad's going to feel a little bit more secure. But since you do have the time, I'm, you know, ex-school teacher, I'm all about putting up posters and signs everywhere in the house. Like pick what the big topic is that you want to make sure dad gets. For me, it was always that we need to make sure that we reward good behavior and that we don't lecture for, for behavior that we don't want to see, that that's attention. So I had big signs all over our house that would said uh, reward good behavior and this is going to make you break out into hives, Dr. Graham Shea, but I would say ignore bad behavior because that was faster than saying don't lecture it. So reward, reward, reward. I put up signs all over our house for me and my husband to remind, oh, right, that's the deal that we're on. We even had the song, Fat Boy Slim, Praise Him. Whenever that comes on, I'm like, it's the ABA song because I it says exactly what you have to do. I have to praise him like I should. I understand that Fat Boy Slim was talking about other things, but ABA, but it works. And, you know, so we would put that song on and we would dance to it. And it was my reminder to myself and to my husband. So I say, go for the big concepts and feel, feel free to allow your husband to work through it. And he, like Dr. Grampy said, there are going to be times when he's not going to get it right. If everybody is alive at the end of the two weeks, it's all going to be okay. So focus on the big, important stuff. And, and I think this is going to be great for you. You're going to have two weeks where you, you know, you get to like, just take care of you. I hope that you do that because heaven knows that you need that. I got to get to Jennifer's question because Jennifer is never going to speak to me again. If I don't get to her question. Uh, I wasn't trying to skip you, Jennifer. Sometimes it's hard, you know, in the in the crawl. Uh, but she says she's got a five-year-old that's regressing in potty training. And she wants to know, do I have to start all over? He's fighting hard not to go to the potty and going number one in his pants after being fully potty trained. Now, she went on to say that when she says fighting it, uh, I'm talking major protesting tantrums to not go to the potty and then going in his pants. Hmm. Uh, so any advice for that? Does she have to start all over? It, I don't know if you have to start over. Um, and if you do end up starting over, it's a much, much faster procedure this time around. It's not going to take that long. 
But the reason I don't know is that there's protesting going on. And I don't know what is causing the protesting. Um, he was okay, I guess, for a while, right? So is it, again, it's a challenging behavior, his protests, and we need to identify the function before we make any further decisions. So it's what is causing that? Is he protesting because some negative thing happened? Is he protesting because uh, he'd rather be doing some other activity and not give it up to go to the bathroom, which often happens with our kids? Uh, is he just trying to gain control over his environment? Maybe you can write a little bit more about, kind of give up, tell me how long he was uh, body trained. Uh, how long was he doing well? Was he uh, just going by himself or was he on a schedule? Like how far had you gone with the body training? And do you know if there was something that triggered this this protest or this kind of regression in that skill? Okay. While you're writing back, should I go ahead and answer Running Wild, who who has a couple of times asked us? Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to go to that one. Um, they want to know specifically what do you believe in vaccines and autism and biomedical treatments and vaccines causing autism? Right. So um, I, you know, first of all, let me just say that I am a very strong believer that autism is not a learned disorder, right? So it's not like you learn to do autism, to, to be ha have those symptoms. Uh, there's, there are uh, definitely, we know, there are many gene combinations that have to be present for autism to uh, occur. And, and the gene combinations, I think we know about 30 possible genes right now, and there are more don't just result in autism on their own, they interact with some sort of environmental factor uh, in order to trigger. So in other words, we know that it is, autism is a, requires a genetic predisposition as well as an environmental trigger. And that combination is as far as we know, right? Now, uh, taking both of those a little bit further, one of the things we know about the biochemistry of a lot of individuals on the spectrum, and let me just back up for a minute and say part of the reason that it's taking so long for scientists to figure out, you know, what is the cause, what's the biomedical cause uh, of autism is that it's such a wide spectrum, right? So there are kids who are here extremely minimally affected by autism and then kids who are like extremely severely affected by autism and it's all called autism or asd right so uh, there's a very high likelihood that the folks on one end of the spectrum have different causes than the folks on the other end of the spectrum it's also possible that they have different biochemistry so it just the fact that it's such a wide spectrum makes it very hard for us to identify exactly what's going on. But what we do know is that a very a large portion of individuals with the uh, spectrum with the diagnosis of ASD have what is called low redox. So they have a difficulty detoxifying as fast as the rest of us. Okay, we are all exposed to toxins in the universe in the world, and. Uh, we detox from those toxins, our body detoxifies at different rates, right? So like for instance, and, and by the way, we react to things differently. Certain things could be a toxin for Shannon and they're not really a toxin for me, right? So different people 
different things are toxic to different people and we detoxify at different rates. I always, when I'm teaching this to our BCBAs, uh, they love it because I tell them, okay, so like you all go out and have drinks tonight. Tomorrow, some of you are not going to feel it at all and others are going to have a big headache, right? And the ones who don't feel it at all are those folks who are lucky because they are have a very high redox. So they can detoxify rapidly. So now think that some of our children, um, many of our children have low redox. So they have uh, what's called high oxidative stress, which we don't want to talk about the details of it. But what it means is they're detoxifying slower. So that is part of the deal. Then they're exposed to toxins in our environment. There are many, many, many toxins in our environment. Uh, vaccines are one of many toxins. So to say, you know, sometimes you'll have parents who will come and say, I swear to God, I have video. And I've seen some of this video, by the way. My child was developing completely normally and then they were vaccinated. And from there on, they started showing symptoms. That is absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. I've seen it over and over again. But there are also parents who, for instance, the minute their child started having gluten, they started exhibiting symptoms of autism. There are parents who, the minute their child started having casein or corn or soy, their child started exhibiting. There are parents where their child lives underneath telephone lines, and as a result of that, they're exhibiting symptoms. So the fact is there's a lot of toxicity. I, we had, um, I had a child years ago where uh, he was diagnosed and we started treating him. This was in like the, uh, near the airport in LAX, John. He was diagnosed and we started treating him and then uh, his neighbor across the street, we didn't even know initially that it was just his neighbor across the street. We started treating him and then they, um, they were in apartment buildings. And then uh, uh, shortly after, there was another child a, a few houses down and another child. We, we, some, one of the parents actually put it together and said, isn't this weird that there's like five or six of us on the same street? And the, one of the parents started looking back and realized they had been doing some sort of spraying of a specific pesticide on that block. Uh, repeatedly due to some infestation that had occurred and all these children were affected by it. So there's a lot of toxins and it's uh, just unfortunate because when there's, you know, tens, twenties toxins, you don't know which one's causing what, right? And so what happens obviously is that that kind of environmental factor affects the, the ability to detoxify um, and as a result, the child becomes a little bit toxic and what age it differs, right? It could happen in utero. So your mom could be going through the toxicity or it could be uh, when you're two years old. Um, and obviously it's going to affect your brain differently um, when you are hit with an overload of toxicity. Now, I do want to say that, unfortunately, and this is kind of the truth and it's a little sad, but I'm saying it because I was saying it already 20, 30 years ago, and I just see it, right? Like the level of toxicity in our food, the number one source, forget about vaccines, the number one source of toxicity in our environment is our food, unfortunately, because not only are there tons and tons of pesticides on our food, 
but also, um, you know, we, we contain our food in plastic a lot of times and uh, the animals have a lot of injections of different types. So if you're a meat eater, you're also getting toxicity there. There's tons of toxicity in, in everything we ingest. And that is starting to show in all of us. It's not just with our children. Uh, I, I would say maybe 15, 20 years ago, it started to really affect uh, uh, women who were trying to become pregnant. It started to affect our fertility rates. People were having a harder and harder time actually becoming pregnant. And now, of course, it's affecting everyone. Like if you, the number of people who have uh, irritable bowel or uh, some sort of gastrointestinal inflammation has just increased tremendously. It's, it's a sad fact that, you know, 20 years ago, you would never see a commercial on TV about prebiotics, probiotics, medication for GI distress. Now it's almost every channel, every 10 minutes, there's some sort of commercial having to do with a new medication or a new treatment for gastrointestinal distress. It's, it's just, it's very alarming and concerning, but that's kind of uh, my explanation of how, how things relate. Uh, so informative. At some point, we need to do a town hall with you and a few other people talking about exactly these things. Um, and they said, I, I could listen to Dr. Doreen Wisdom all day long, you and me both. Uh, but Olivia wrote in many comments during this. She wanted to know, could the, the be that the lack of uh, detoxifying is because of a lack of good bacteria in the bowel? She wants to know, you know, they should be doing uh, uh, tests individually because it's a wide spectrum, something I know that CARD has been doing. Uh, and she wants to know, did you, do you uh, suggest any specific diet, uh, which I think goes right back to what you were saying that it's different for each individual, right? Yeah, it really is. So what happens with this kind of toxicity issue that we're talking about, that's kind of just the stage one, because then when you start to get inflammation in the gut, which occurs as a result of any kind of toxicity, um, you start to have inflammation and the inflammation then re leads to other issues, right? So for instance, uh, someone talked about not having good bacteria. Not having good bacteria is like in your large intestine, by the way, is one of those things that can happen uh, just if you have, uh, you know, at a two year, you're two years old and you have two ear infections back to back. And the first time they give you amoxicillin and it doesn't really do its job. So then they give you Augmentin, which is a much stronger antibiotic. And that's it. That's all you need. All your good bacteria is wiped out because antibiotics, their job is to eliminate bacteria. It's not like they go after bad bacteria. They just go after any bacteria. And yes, you are supposed to have a certain amount of bacteria in your intestine in order to digest food. And when you don't have that bacteria, you halfway digest the food. You digest it to the point of turning proteins into peptides. Usually we take proteins, turn them into peptides, and then turn them into amino acids. And amino acids are what kind of travel and give your nutrition to the brain. So now you're not doing that. Now what happens is even worse because you have this inflammation going on in your gut. And these peptides, which are like chains of amino acids, start to leak. And that's what we call leaky guts. I'm sure a lot of you guys have talked about or heard about it. 
And the leaky gut issue is now that these peptides are circulating in your bloodstream, they actually do mimic endorphins. They actually, uh, your brain thinks it's an endorphin. And how do we react when we have endorphins? We're happy, we're giddy, we laugh, we act silly. And that sometimes you see with our children as well. So yeah, there's a lot of this kind of stuff and there are different diets. So, you know, another thing that happens when there's continued inf inf uh, inflammation, some of our kids develop fungal infections. So for those children, it becomes really important to treat the fungus. There are other children where there's a lot of bloating. And when there's a lot of bloating, you're looking at what's called SIBO, which is the small intestinal uh, intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is treated very differently than if you don't have enough bacteria in your large intestine. So these are, it's, it's very different. It's just that it, there's a lot of chaos that goes on in your gut. And it would be very, very important to, to get together with a physician who is trained to take you through this process. Um, my recommendation, now there's you can start with your pediatrician, go to your, the pediatrician will refer you to a GI doctor perhaps. Um, but all of that, the Western medicine, what Western medicine does is that it gives you um, a, a way to eliminate the pain. It'll give you kind of, uh, you know, like we have a headache, we take Tylenol or we take Advil, right? We don't think, I wonder what's causing this headache and maybe I should do something about the cause. Eastern medicine or homeopathic, naturopathic medicine works more on, let's figure out what's causing this. And I think when it comes to the gut, you have to do a little bit of both. Um, you sort of have to keep your pain under control and get the inflammation down. But at the same time, a lot of times they have to figure out what's going on. What is the, the issue that happened here? How do we clean the gut up? How do we put back the healthy bacteria, which is probiotics and prebiotics how do we uh, put the child on a specific diet that will not allow him to react again like what are the toxins for this particular child it's going to be different there's lots of diets there are some children who do extremely well if you just take them off casein at the protein in milk other children require to be taken off gluten the protein in all uh, whole grains like wheat um, others require you to also take them off corn and soy. Um, others need what's called a FODMAP diet. I mean, there's lots of different types of diets, and it's really just about finding out what your child needs. Absolutely. And very, and very quickly, uh, the cell phone qu question, which I keep popping up, and the whole issue of electrical networks and cell phones, they are not toxic in their, on their own, but what cell phone uh, uh, waves do is they lower what's called the blood brain barrier. And that means that when you have a high level of exposure to the cell phones, which by the way, it's not about holding a cell phone to your ear anymore. There's massive radio waves above us. So everybody has high, high exposure now to cell phones. What it means is that our blood brain barrier threshold is lower now, which means anything that's in our body going on will go to the brain easier. It's easier for those toxins in our body to reach the brain because that barrier, which is a chemical wall, is now lower. So so it starts to affect the brain faster. Okay. Um, Parker, FODMAP. FODMAP. Yes. 
F-O-D-M-A-P. There we go. I always thought it was FODMAP too. I want to get back to Jennifer really quickly and we're out of time. But she said that um, she thinks that the potty issue is a little bit of control over his environment and that this started when right when school stopped. Oh, so it, his routine changed. Um, and I think that, and I don't know, you would, I would want to find out exactly what his routine was in school um, so that you could try to go back to that. Whenever it's an issue of control for kids, I try to give them some control. Uh, so in other words, maybe you can, um, like, one way she to... She says, for instance, he doesn't want to stop doing what he's doing. So oh, yeah. can he take it to the toilet? That's a, that's a great option. Um, or maybe he can understand that he can do it more when he comes back. As opposed to if he wets himself, he's not going to get to do it at all. So okay. differentiate for him that, and that's a very common thing, by the way, is like kids just don't want to stop the activity they're doing to go to the bathroom. So also make it very rewarding for him to go. And as Shannon said, ideally, maybe you could take it with him. There we go. My gosh, I hate leaving because this has been such a great conversation, but we want to thank Dr. Grant Pichet for being here. We'll be back next Wednesday with her, same time, same bat channel. We're back tomorrow, though, and we're going to have Bonnie Yates, special education attorney with us tomorrow and the jargon of the day, um, all of that tomorrow. So I want to thank all of you for being here. Don't forget to like, share, tell other people if you saw something here that you liked and you think it would benefit somebody else. Make sure that they know about it because we only do grassroots marketing. Uh, but again, we are going to be back tomorrow. Thank you, Dr. Grampiche. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye, everyone.